What's up, UX designers? Welcome to the UX Hustle Podcast. This is a show about having fun designing intuitive and valuable experiences and crafting a fulfilling career within UX design. Now here's your host, Sophia Wojciechowski prater What's up, UXers? Sophia here. And before we get started with Carolyn's interview, which I'm very excited to share, I want to let you know that I just kicked off the very first round of the Object or in UX and Orca certification course. So I have my first cohort together. It's 20 people. We just started yesterday and so far so good. So it's going to be an eight-week course to get certified in my process for object-oriented UX, which is my process for UX. So um, I will be doing a second round, uh, probably around mid-summer, maybe early summer. I'm going to check out the timing, but there's going to be a second round and of course a third and a fourth and a fifth round. But if you're interested in being part of that second round, Please get on my newsletter if you're not already on there. I promise I do not I do not spam at all. I send maybe one email a month if I'm doing really, really good. Uh, but I want to be able to alert you to that when the registration opens up for this second round of the certification course. So if you're interested in that, please sign up for the newsletter. You can go to rewiredux.com slash newsletter. I'll put the link in the show notes, of course. But go there, make sure you're signed up so that you can get any updates on object or in UX, and especially the next round of the course. Okay, let's go talk to Carolyn. So today we have Carolyn Sober-James, and she is the director of UX at Acumium in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, Acumium does design, development, digital marketing, all the things. Um, all the up things. in Madison, all the things. And um, the reason I have Carolyn on is because she has been um, working hard to help uh, evangelize object oriented UX, which many of the listeners know that is my personal <laughs> UX hustle, and it has now become one of Carolyn's hustles. So she has uh, already spoken at that conference. Um, She's going to be speaking at MDEV, which is the game design uh, and developers conference on how OUX can apply to game design, which we're going to talk a lot about that. Um, And also at Entree Fest. Is that how you... I, I think it's Entree Fest, or I, I think it's, if it was Entrepreneur, I think it's Entree Fest. Uh, ah, yeah. yes, yes, it's yeah, for entrepreneurs, yes. so, um, yes. and that is, I'm really interested to talk more about that, because I've actually gotten questions yeah. about how OUX can apply to innovation, um, mm-hmm. so maybe we can go down in the weeds on that. So, um, so that's the, the, the high level on Carolyn, so, <laughs> but for those that don't know you, uh, can you just introduce yourself a little bit, if you have anything to add to that? And um, just go into your journey on how you got into UX. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, as far as what to add to that, uh, not too much that you covered that, the high points. I lead the UX practice at Acumium. Um, Acumium's been in business for, I think this is our 19th year. Um, like you said, we do all the things. We're a kind of uniquely broad um, digital agency, which means I get to work on a lot of really interesting projects with a lot of uh, different clients from different verticals, different problems they're trying to solve. So it's very good for um, uh, keeping keeping the brain stimulated. 
um, my journey to UX was a, kind of a unique one, I think. Like, I haven't heard of a lot of people coming to UX through my particular path. Um, my story with UX, I think, starts with like the early 2000s. And I was working at a, um, a biotech company, a, a life science manufacturing company called Promega here in Madison. And I was super green. I think I was like, I don't know, 24 or something like that. And um, got, became aware of uh, user experience and sort of pitched that I wanted to kind of fire up a customer experience role, function at Promega. And so to their credit, they, they, they were like, okay, sounds good. Let's try it. And I think we rolled with it for, uh, it might have been like, a year or maybe two and the organization wasn't really ready for it um so there wasn't the there wasn't the support there to to kind of and, and i was still pretty green so um so but my my sort of love and addiction for user experience started there and just kind of kept on growing so my time at i was at promega for 15 years and so i had a lot of different roles kind of ranging from business analyst to project manager to then I moved into web development sort of HTML CSS kind of very front-end presentation markup stuff and then um, my my boss uh, said do you want to become a server-side developer he said we'll take you we'll send you to all kinds of training and and I was like sure that sounds great so I I was a server-side developer for I think it was eight years um, at Promega, still kind of doing the UX stuff on the on the side, like all of my fellow devs, I was the person that they came to to like, Carolyn, please help me with my interface kind of thing. Okay. So it was more UI than UX, but um, it was still sort of a, a common thread of, of passion. And um, so, can you go that, into just a little bit on what does a server side developer do? What is that? Oh, look sure. Like? So it's the it's the back end back end coding. So I started off um, learning VB.net, which was super verbose language, um, and shifted into working on C sharp.net. Um, so I wasn't doing really well, I mean I, I did a little bit of presentation layer stuff, but for the most part I was working on the you know data layer, business logic layer. Um, you know, kind of code monkey stuff. Mm -hmm. um, not doing. Were you designing of... the databases? Sometimes, yeah. Okay. I had a had a role in it. Yeah. So there, I mean, there definitely there definitely was some stuff from the server side dev role that that has kind of a. I mean, it's directly applicable to to some of the stuff that I'm doing now, especially regarding the application of the OUX methodology. So it, it got to be where my time uh, at Promega um, was coming to an end, and I, I wanted to move on to something different. And I initially interviewed at Acumium for a dev role, and that wasn't a great fit. But um, Dan Costello, our founder and CEO, and, and the guy who's my my boss now, called me back and he said, "We have this other we have this other thing that we need. We need somebody who can sort of be in a user experience role." I was like, sure, I've been doing this basically kind of as a side, a side hustle yeah. with my, you know, regular hustle for like 12 years at this point and maybe even longer than that. And so that's how I got to be sort of a full-time UXer. And 
uh, started off as lead UX designer at Accumium, and it wasn't too long. I think it was within the first six or eight months. Dan and I went out for lunch, and we were, you know, having noodles. And I said, I want to be the director of user experience, and I want to build a UX practice. And he's like, cool, let's do that. So wow. um, it was like a year and a half-ish after I started there that I moved into the, the leadership role. It probably would have been a little sooner, but I threw having a baby and maternity leave in there. So that kind of got put on, uh, it delayed things a bit. So, so I've just been working to, you know, kind of keep building that out and figure out, you know, what's our service catalog? What's the space that we want to kind of play? Um, we are like, we, we love OOUX. We're totally like drinking the Kool-Aid on that one and, and trying to advocate it for, for clients and working into projects as much as we can. So. So what, so what year was that, that, um, that you applied at Accumium and they said, well, we don't have this dev role that you applied for, but we have this other thing that, you know, yeah. you've been interested in for the last 15 years in. What year right. was that? That was, uh, it was the tail end of 2014. Wow. Yeah, it just I started... goes to show how, how much, how time moves so fast. Like, I don't think... I wonder how many more of those kind of opportunities, like being at the right place at the right time, because now so many more practices are grown. Um, and I mean, I feel like I was definitely there. I was a few years before that, but like at the right place at the right time where the UX role sort of got put in my lap. Right. And it was yeah. like, it was somebody else actually that said, you might be good for this. Like you applied right. for this, but you might actually be good for this thing that like, we don't really know what we're doing with this. So. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, even though, even though I literally had been doing some, some form of, of UX UI for the last 12, 13 years, I never would have gone after a UX role because the imposter syndrome is strong mm -hmm. with this one. And I wouldn't have been like, Oh yeah, I can do that. Now I, I now I probably would because I've I've gotten more audacious in the last five years. But um, but yeah, and and what was interesting was um, you know one of the initial uh, the impetus or one of the one of the key um, reasons that Dan sort of wanted to bring on this role was actually to directly help the dev team um, with with uh, economical and efficient throughput, like the, the user stories that the devs were working from were uh, at the time not, um, not defined and not uh, at a sufficient level of detail from the standpoint of what is it we actually need to build from the, the you know, interface side in order for them to provide accurate estimates. And okay. so it kind of started off as a this is sort of a twofer. It's like, we'll, if we focus on this, we can build better things for our clients anyway, but we'll also help our development process that much more um, efficient and effective and, and be able to, to estimate more accurately. So, okay. So it was a lot of yeah. like, we're having problems scoping our projects. Some of it. Yeah, that was part of it. Yeah, that was part of it. Yeah. So I want to go back to just something you said about becoming more audacious um, and kind of getting over that imposter syndrome. Um, yeah, so I'm not over it. I'm not, I'm not at Nobody's all over ever it. over it. I'm not over it. Um, yeah. But but how did you, um, what do you think happened to make you more audacious? Well, um, part of it was that uh, when I joined Acumium, 
it was like a it's a it's a completely intrapreneurial environment so if you're mm-hmm. familiar with that that mm-hmm. term um and and dan really just kind of you know i i told him i said something i really appreciate you is about you is that you really don't tell me no like you tell me I need more information or you tell me not right now we need to do this other thing first but there were never any sort of hard no so I could bring ideas to the table mm-hmm. and um, he was he was all ears and you know was really sort of open to me trying stuff um, and I, I so I had been in this I had been at this company Promega is a great company really progressive company it's a it, people are lifers there in many cases they stay there for a long long time and it was very comfortable it was very secure you know I, I could have probably been a lifer there but as far as professional growth goes it was not uh, it was not a rich um, environment at least in the role I was in um, so I, I came to Acumium and all of a sudden my, my professional growth, like I said, in my first year at Acumium, I did more professional growth than probably in the last several years wow. at, at my previous employer. Yeah. And the other piece of it, and I think I remember you talking about this, it might've been when you were on Jason's user defenders podcast about the force functions idea, right? Where, mm-hmm. where it was just like, um, I started going into things with the attitude of, and I, I can't tell you like when this shift happened. I think it was probably just sort of, you know, a combination of, of circumstances and environmental factors that made this made this easier. But um, I got to the point where it was just kind of like, I'm going to say, yes, I can do this and I'm going to figure it out as exactly. I go. Yeah. And, and that has gotten to be an extremely comfortable place for me to play. And that's something that, you know, as um, I would, I would provide a sort of advice or recommendations to anybody who's in, um, you know, who's in a UX role or, or is looking to get into UX role, just be like, um, just, just decide to do it and then right. figure it out. Yeah. And so those force functions for, uh, for anyone who didn't hear that episode, that's basically, it's, it's it's easier to explain it with an example, but I always say make the get the date for your uh, for your conference talk before you figure out the slides or apply to it. Like don't wait to get everything perfect before you go and apply to do the thing because it'll right. never get done. And that's that's basically how I constructed my career as well. Is yeah. it was my very first object during UX workshop. I did a talk at, at Adaptive Pass UX Week. And then Jesse James Garrett came back and said, hey, speakers, who would you recommend for next year? And I just raised my hand. I said, me, 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 me. Let, me, yeah. let me do a workshop based on the talk that I gave last year. And I had no idea what that workshop was going to look like. Mm-hmm. I just knew that I was on to something and I could figure out how to turn it into a workshop. And that was really scary. But what I'm doing today with... Um, uh, coming out with this object drawing UX course and certification. So I have a beta coming up and I basically invited a bunch of people to it. And I have, I mean, the first webinar is on February 17th and we're going to do it. And I have a schedule built out, but do I have weeks four, five, and six fully planned out? <laughs> yeah. No, I do not. <laughs> I absolutely right. do not. Right. Um, so those force functions. So that actually I didn't think twice about doing that. So I've basically yeah. trained myself to create those force functions. Um, yeah. Well, you, yeah. And you, you, you do get, 
I think you get the, the, the first step is the hardest, like doing it the first time. It's, it's kind of terrifying, but, but as you do it, you realize that, um, you have it within yourself to, to get it done. You know, there's always a way to make it work. And, and there's way more growth that can happen at the, um, we talk about it being the comfortable side of uncomfortable, like stay in a place where you, you aren't, you aren't really comfortable and there's there, it's just a really rich place for for um growth so and what would yeah. you say as far as so you um were talking about how just the environment was so conducive um what advice would you give to leaders that are trying to create that kind of environment for growth i think you ask i think you ask for it i think you say here's what i want from you i want you to bring me ideas i want you to bring me things you're passionate about and I might not say yes every time. It might not be something that we can feasibly do every time, but I want you bringing it to me and I want to hear your ideas. And it can be, it can be wacky. Like, don't save the wacky ideas. Like, let's talk about them. Because even in a wacky idea, there can be a kernel of something that you can build on. Being a leader at Acumium, I, I had not been in a, a, like formally in any sort of leadership role beforehand. I wasn't, wasn't anybody's manager. I didn't have any direct reports. What I've tried to build um, as a leader here is a place where it's safe for the people who are on my team and work closely with me to fail. There's, there's not going to be any sort of like consequences. There's not going to be, you know, it's like, and 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 that that actually may sort of come indirectly from being in the environment at the biotech company with the life science and the research because a huge part of research is skunk works where you're just kind of like we don't know if this is a thing but we're going to spend a certain amount of energy and time and resources kind of kind of exploring it and um if it's not a thing, we'll chalk it up to, hey, we learned something or we know what not to do again. Um, but but that kind of environment where you have room to to fail. You don't always have to be successful. You don't always have to knock stuff out of the park. I think that's, that's great advice for leaders because I think, and especially what you said about how you would frame the ask to say, come bring me your crazy ideas. I might not say yes. <laughs> and I think maybe some leaders would want to say, come bring me your crazy ideas, but then feel obligated to endorse those ideas. So yeah. just making sure that it's this, um, this open conversation of, yeah, I want to hear your crazy ideas. I might bounce back with a, with a, another idea that, that might be more realistic. Um, right. but really encouraging people to do that and to pe for people to comes back to to vulnerability for people to be vulnerable and to say yeah. like, here's this, this thing that I've been thinking about for our company. Cause I think a lot of times you might have an idea for a company that might be very transformational, but you have that imposter syndrome and you might think, who am I, who am I to bring this idea forward? Yeah. And, and as a leader, you do, I mean, ideally you have, uh, you have a decent toolbox of emotional intelligence kinds of things to draw from where you can have those conversations with people. One of, um, one of the best books I read, uh, I think I read it in 2018, it was, it was within the last year, year and a half, um, was Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Um, loved that book. And I love the underlying principle of it that in these relationships, personal and professional, 
it's this, you care personally about the person and you have shown them, they, they feel confident in that, that you care about them so that when the time comes, you can challenge them directly and unambiguously and kind of call them out on their shit. And, and there's a safe space, there's a safe place to fall because you've built up this personal capital and have, you know, sometimes hard conversations is really important um, for, the, for the health of a team, for the health of really many relationship, I think. So would you recommend, you're the second person that's recommended that book in like the last few weeks. So would you oh. recommend that book to, um, to people, even you said for any relationship, like just totally. even people that aren't in leadership roles or people that are totally just for yep. relationships in general. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I mean, it absolutely applies. It's, it's written in the context of, um, of professional relationships, but it, it absolutely applies to, to personal relationships too. It's cool. like if, if you have that foundation of trust and care, um, the feedback that you give to people or the times when you kind of call them out, they, 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 they understand that this isn't personal. There's a reason that Carolyn is coming to me and saying, okay, that approach you took was not the best approach. And here's why. Mm-hmm. And, and that foundation of really knowing that, you know, I, I want the people on my team to never question that I care about them mm-hmm. as people. So what is, um, as you're, as you're going around your day to day with, with your radical candor, what is a day in <laughs> life look like for you? Oh gosh. Um, a day in the life for me is, uh, well, it's, it's different every day being in an agency model. I mean, you, you have probably the same thing too. It's kind of, you're kind of splitting, splitting energy between multiple projects very often. Um, also, uh, you know, so, so I generally will have like, I don't know, between two and four meteor things that I'm working on at, at any given time all in different stages of, you know, the development or project process, um, which is good for my brain. I actually really like that. Like I'm, I'm, I think I'm sort of wired for Mm multi-threading. I think there are people who, who need, need to be able to focus really hard on, on kind of one thing. And that's, and that's cool. I've, I, um, I don't think I'm like that. I think I actually kind of do well when I can kind of, you know, bumblebee flip from flower to flower a little bit and kind of sprinkle energy on, on different things over the course of a day. That's actually interesting that you say that. Cause I've, I feel like it's very, it's a very popular sentiment these days to talk about focusing on one thing, just because we are so fractured with, uh, with social media and technology. Our, our attention mm-hmm. is, um, it, it, it is getting harder and harder to focus. So I feel like there's like a, the pendulum is swinging in the other direction with, um, the book, the one thing, and just people really trying to, um, to say like, like task batching as well is another thing that's gotten very popular in productivity. Mm. And I'm the same as you, Carolyn, I actually like splitting up my day into about three to even sometimes four big activities. Um, Mm -hmm. and to do that multi-threading, I always have three projects or more going at once. And I've actually been trying to focus more, but maybe it's just different types of people. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think it totally, I mean, I, my, my kind of general philosophy about a lot of things is you do you, right? Like mm-hmm. if it works for you, there's, you know, don't listen to the self-help books unless they actually help you. Like if you read a self-help book or a manager book, you know, a management book or a leadership book, and it makes you feel like crap 
it might just not be your jam. So find out what is your jam because whether it's as a leader or as you know somebody who's in the trenches doing the work, when you find your rhythm and your way of doing um, the work, you're going to do better work because it's you got flow then, right? Whatever your flow looks like. My flow might not look like my, your flow might not look like somebody else's flow. And I think like if you like you're reading a self-help book or a managerial book, a business book, and you come in with the expectation that it's either going to be all or nothing, like it's either going to be every hundred percent of this is going to be for me or a hundred percent of it's just not going to be for me. I think the truth is always going to be somewhere in between. It's going to be yeah. like, I, I usually come in with the, the expectations that maybe I'll get one or two really awesome golden nuggets from any kind of self-development book that I read and that the yeah. most of it probably won't apply to me. Um, right. I like the term multi-threading instead of yeah. multi-tasking because it's different than multitasking. <laughs> it's like, I'm not multitasking. I'm, I'm multi-threading. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so going back to a day in your life, like what is, um, do you have a lot of meetings? Are you doing one-on-ones? Like what kind of, um, what kind of stuff is happening in a given day? Um, I, the the number of meetings kind of depends on, on the week and what's going on and, and, you know, where things are kind of getting to critical, critical discussion points with, with clients, um, from a one-on-one perspective, really the, the approach I take there, um, with people on my team is that I'm here. I'm always here. This is your career and you are, I'm not going to come knocking on your door saying, let's have a one-on-one. It's like, this is your hustle and yeah. and you tell me you know if you need me I will drop everything and I will you know we'll talk I like that yeah um make them be proactive about it right right so one of the main reasons we're talking today is because you're using Objectorian UX and also yeah. evangelizing Objectorian UX so thank you yeah. so much for that um and before we kind of go into some details on how it's playing out with your career and how it's playing at, out at Accumium, can you do something for me? And can you give your definition of object-oriented UX? Like, how would you explain it to, you know, what's your elevator pitch for it? Just for people who oh aren't gosh. listening and like have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> I, I would probably describe it as a, as a design methodology that has its basis in breaking down a problem domain into um, uh, understandable uh, pieces, objects that match uh, the the mental models of the people that are uh, that are um, in that problem domain. So um, those might be physical objects, they might be conceptual objects, but it's it's um, taking taking a space and and kind of working to break it down into what are the the recognizable consistent logical pieces that allow people sort of an immediate familiarity, immediately increased usability, um, and, and, uh, sort of a natural effortless understanding. Love it. Thank I love hearing other people's definitions because they're often better than mine. And, and what would you say, like, how, how is that different than how UX is traditionally practiced or how even you were practicing before you started practicing OUX? I think UX, um, you know, very often there's a rush to UI. Um, there's a rush to putting things down in some sort of a presentation layer, whether that's a rough sketch or a wireframe or a prototype, without really understanding the, the what's of, of the system. 
um, and the what's of that of that problem space. And and in a way, to me, this really harkens back to um, you know work I'd done previously in in a BA kind of role, gathering uh, requirements for projects. That's all about focusing on the what's as well. It's kind of like magic wand time this doesn't this doesn't we don't need to figure out how we're going to do this we want to understand what needs to happen in this project what needs to happen in this system so i think traditionally there there maybe is a, a bit of a um a bit of a rush to laying things down in an, in an interface before truly understanding um, all the things how they're interconnected how they relate to each other um, you know, what people need to be able to do with them, et cetera, et cetera. So OOUX is a, um, I found it to be an extremely valuable foundation layer for projects. And it's a foundation layer for the way that, the way that we've had, the experiences we've had with it. It's not only a foundation layer for design, it's really a foundation layer for, you know, kind of the overall solution. Originally, it was when you came and did the workshop and talk at Better by Design here in Madison, I think it was 2016. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, uh, I didn't get signed up for the workshop. I think I can't remember if it was a timing thing or a budget thing, but I didn't get signed up for the workshop. And then I attended the conference and you did a subsequent talk. And I remember just thinking, oh crap, I messed up. I should have, I should have been in that workshop. And so I sort of became obsessed with like, I need to go to one of Sophia's workshops. And, and then you came to Chicago in, was that 2018, I think? Um, it was yes. like one, one day. Run together. <laughs> uh, they do run together. I think it was 2018. So, so you did the workshop in, in Chicago for a day and, and there were four of us from Acumium that came. And you know we did your sort of intensive one day one day deal. And um, by the way, doing stickies on a high rise in Chicago is like absolutely the most banging way to do uh, to do the object modeling. I, that view I was not, nice. That was super. That hot. view <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, and and for us to be able to do our model literally on the window was was pretty awesome. Um, but we came back from that that workshop. We were working with a, a, a banking client at the time and literally the next day we had like a two-hour session scheduled with the client to kind of do like discovery requirements gathering um, just kind of conversations about it was a website redesign and and we were talking you know we're going to talk about what does this thing need to be and we kind of made the uh, in-process decision why don't we apply what we learned yesterday and turn this into an object modeling workshop and it was amazing. It was like the client got it. They, you know, and, and this, this, you know, this client was, was not the easiest client that we've ever worked with, but the client was sitting there, they got it. Like they were participating in the conversation. They were, you know, um, they were writing things on stickies occasionally and handing it up to us to, to put on the board. And at the end of this two hour session, we had this like um, pretty comprehensive, initial object model that just sort of mapped out all of the um, all of the things in in a banking context that matched how, how they did business and it was extraordinarily productive we had a dev in the room and at and afterwards he was like that was amazing i have way more context for what it is i'm eventually going to need to be able to do with this system so 
And that's mm-hmm. one of my questions was, is if you introduce your clients to the process, um, sounds like you do. Yeah. Um, and how do you actually do that? Do you train them up on object, like the philosophy of object or UX, or do you just kind of jump into the methodology? Um, kind of give me some details on how you set up that workshop and how you kind of got them on board. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the, the way we set it up, I think we, I think we just kind of said, uh, you know, that, that particular client, we kind of said, we have something we knew we want to try. I tend to keep the, um, you had like a one pager that just talked about the different color stickies and what they represent. It's sort of a cheat sheet, a key mm-hmm. for the different color coding. So I bring that along to, um, to conversations with, with clients when we're going to be doing this kind of work. I think probably more often than not, it ends up that I'm doing the majority of sticky writing and sticking. So I'm facilitating the conversation or, or others from Accumium who are in the room are assisting and facilitating the conversation, sort of asking questions and extracting this information from the client. I think we have had cases where, you know, a client will hop up and kind of start doing, doing some of it themselves, but I'm, I'm more than happy to, um, I'm more than happy to kind of midwife that because I think there's also a translation that that sometimes needs to happen bet- between what the client says and what you actually document. You know, it's kind of just like, okay, this is what I hear you saying, but this is how this is how I think this kind of comes out. Does that yes. sound accurate? And yes. they're like, yeah, that's what I mean. So I think if it was just like a free for all client slapping stickies up there, there'd be a lot more cruft that you'd need to kind of work through and just right. be like, not that, not that either one is better or worse, but I think we tend to do more of a facilitated session where the client can just talk. Yeah. I've done it both ways where I kind of give them the whole spiel. I, I learn them up and then set them loose to make object maps and kind of set them through. The cool thing about having them do it, especially if you have groups doing it, is that you can see where the differences are. So if you have a larger group and you get them to make three, you get teams of three making three object maps, then you can start seeing like, okay, you guys have identified these objects versus these objects. Um, And it it kind of um, highlights like places where there's not a shared understanding where there needs to have a conversation, which is cool. But I've also done it when you just don't have as much time, when you don't have time to like bring them all up and and sort through all that, um, that cruff, I think you called it (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. where I just, I'm doing all the sticky noting and I'm not like, they have no idea why I'm writing some stuff on a yellow sticky note versus a red sticky note. I'm just like, I know that that's metadata. So I'm going to put it on a red sticky note. Right. Um, But it's just kind of like, okay, we're, we're seeing it happen. We're saying something and we're seeing something get documented. Another thing that I found, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but um, one thing that I found is so helpful in getting clients involved and getting them involved early in the process before they're starting to see screen sketches or wireframes or anything is that the place that clients and subject matter experts um, or stakeholders, the good thing about getting them involved doing an object mapping exercise is that this is where they're most useful to you. They're not going to be most useful judging your design. They're going to be most useful helping you with that information layer and helping you build that object map. So if you found that like that the wireframing part is easier that you get kind of, you get to consensus faster. It very well could be. I think the, you know, what doing the object mapping definitely helps with is that you have a, you have an upstream um, effort an upstream deliverable 
that when you translate that ultimately into some sort of uh, UI, you can have the conversation with the client. Be like, okay, remember how we talked about, you know, we've got we've got products and locations and events and people. Here's how this is coming out. Versus the, you know, if you just kind of go right to design, then I think the feedback tends to be around do people like the design or not? Mm-hmm. And it gets to be that sort of design by committee thing, which is um, this work allows you to sort of validate, does this reflect the things that we talked about? Does this reflect the, the robustness of these, these objects that we discussed as a, as a team? I mean, most of the time, the, the resulting UI just makes way more sense. So, so there's not as much, I, I think there's just kind of naturally not as much back and forth, not as much discussion because it's kind of like you look at it and you're like, yep, I mean, maybe <laughs> yeah. there's a little, maybe there's a little tweaking that needs to happen, but it's like, that's pretty much it uh, that I look at that and it just makes sense. So, yep. so the, you've already constructed strong bones. So the stuff on right. top, um, yeah, might just need a little bit of squishing around, but it's got yeah. the strong bones underneath. So you're going to be speaking at two upcoming conferences and I yes. want to talk about each of those. So the one, the next one you have is at the game design conference. Yeah. Um, MDev. MDev. Yep. Yeah. And we'll, we'll link to all these conferences in the show notes. Can you tell me a little bit about how you're spinning object or UX for a, <laughs> uh, for game developers and game designers? Yeah. So this is one of my ongoing force functions because I know nothing, literally nothing about game design and development. <laughs> I have never played in the space. I'm, and, and honestly, I'm, I pitched the talk to them because I have gotten, and I've gotten so much value myself and seen so much value come out of OOUX in the website and application space that it kind of occurred to me like, well, maybe there is an application for this in game design development. So I'm really pitching this. I'm, I'm going to present this as sort of a, uh, this is a crossover methodology. This is to sort of stimulate your brain. You may or may not be able to use this like wholesale to do, to do game design. You know, there might be elements of it that, that, they, that they can take and apply um, to game design. I do think that you know, it's probably a bit more directly applicable to like educational games or things that have sort of deep, you know, strong roots in the real world. Mm -hmm. It might be less applicable to like a full-on fantasy game because the whole, you know, one of the whole ideas about OUX is that you're sort of reflecting and enforcing the rules and the relationships, like, Mm -hmm. you know, tables don't float off the ground there there aren't there aren't dragons that are you know like coming around the corner kind of thing mm-hmm. so fantasy games don't really um they don't subscribe to those rules which is not to say that you couldn't still sort of even in a fantasy game situation uh outline all the objects and still do the work to kind of identify what are the attributes of these things what are the relationships between them what are the um what are the things that people can do with these. I actually, I will, um, I will disagree with you on that. I think it's even more important for fantasy games to make sure that you understand the rules because the rules are different than the real world, but you still need rules. So if you've read any fantasy before, that's like, I I feel like bad fantasy is the fantasy that is just kind of like making stuff up as they go along. And then to like fulfill the plot point, there's just some sort of 
weird thing like oh Random. now now tables can float off the ground and you're like but what like that was never it was never set up sure. like now you're just trying to like you got yourself into a plot or a, yeah. you know a, a plot dead end so you created a new rule and yeah. with fantasy it's really important when you're taking somebody into a fantasy world to make sure that like this new strange world has been well outlined and yeah. you kind of understand like, okay, the rules are different, but there are rules still. I, I can, I can buy into that. I can, I, I can align with your, with your thinking on that too. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I think um, the, my particular approach on the talk, um, this was a, a recommendation from one of the people who's involved with uh, sort of the leadership of the conference. Um, she and I are, are, uh, connected from just sort of a network perspective um, outside of this conference. But um, she said, if you can tie it into um, a game, if you can, if you can like take a game and kind of deconstruct it into what would that look like in, in an object map? So, so this is my, my plan is that um, my, my three-year-old, my three-nager, um, he loves to play video games with me. So we have an NES classic in our rec room and playing video games together is basically him watching me play video games. So <laughs> this last year, his obsession has been Mega Man 2. And I don't know if you've ever played Mega Man 2. I had never played Mega Man 2, but I have now won Mega Man 2. So I'm going to take Mega Man 2. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> well, you know, that's what happens when every weekend after his nap, he's like, Mom, let's go play video games. And I want to play Mega Man 2. And you play for half an hour, 45 minutes. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to take Mega Man 2 and kind of um, deconstruct it into a, a, you know, an object map and show people this is kind of how how this works and and we'll see you know it'll it'll be it'll be interesting i have oh i gosh. really have no idea what to expect it might be sort of like it might go over like a lead balloon it might be that i've got people coming up to me after the talk and and packed two and three deep to ask me follow-up questions which is what happened at that conference actually which was what was so awesome about that because that is um, primarily a, a developer conference, more so than a designer conference. They're, they're starting to edge more into designer topics, but um, the, the appeal of OUX as a methodology to this largely developer-based audience for that conference was super apparent just in the reaction that I got to my talk, both immediately afterwards and then kind of following up on Twitter and LinkedIn and all that. Because right. I think it was just kind of like, the, the devs got it. They're like, I see the value. Like, you know, I got, I got emails after your, after your that's right. talk too. So you obviously did a really, really great job. And that's always a good sign is after, after your talk, when you get, when you get swarmed, you're like, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> people, yeah. People it was cool. Hey guys, it's Sophia from the future. I just got a email from Carolyn about how the talk went at MDev. So she writes that it went over great. She had a full house and standing room only. And she writes, quote, tons of people took pics of the screen. There was a decent amount of nodding. Nobody left midway through. Big round of applause at the end. And then like seven to eight people queued up to talk to me afterwards. So yes, that totally confirms that gamers like object-oriented UX, that this way of thinking 
applies to game design, which is pretty freaking cool. So congrats to Carolyn for another amazing OUX talk under your belt. So one other thing on game design that I just want to, I want to throw a thought at you. Um, one thing that I thought about with board games. So I don't play video games, but I play, I love playing board games. Um, and one thing that I've seen with directions, with the directions of the board games is they're very procedural usually. They're like, they sure. might tell you like, here's the things in the box, but it doesn't tell you the properties of the things in the box. Right. So I've thought of, and I've like sketched this out a little bit, how you could redesign the instructions for a game to be object oriented. So it, it just describes to you the components. So at a high level, what are these components? What yeah. are the relationships between the components? Like this deck of cards affects these pieces or right. these pieces affect these tokens over here. You have to get these cards to get these tokens. Um, so basic properties of the things, basic relationships of the things, and then what you can do to the things and like lay that land first and then go yeah. into the procedures. And I feel like it would just make directions easier to learn. I think, I think it absolutely could. I mean, I think it would be awesome if you could find, you know, if you could find somebody who was, who was in the process of creating a game that, that was sort of like the rules of this are going to be a little complex and just be like, all right, let's OOU exit and just kind of see, yeah. see what we come out with. And then you can like, you know, usability test the instructions and just be like, read this. And would you understand, you know, tell them, tell me about what you think you're supposed to do in this game. And what are the, yeah. What do all these pieces do together and all that? Okay. Call, calling out all, all dog alert. So if there's anyone out there that is like interested in helping with this, I would love to do some sort of blog. I don't know if that, I'm going to do it, but like to redesign game instructions. So anybody that yeah. loves board games and also is into object or UX message right. me, we'll all, we'll all chat about it and maybe we can do some cool project where we like redesign complex game instructions and usability testament, see which one people can learn easily. Um, yeah, easily. totally. Um, okay. And then your, the next conference you have going after that is on a conference for entrepreneurs at mm -hmm. Entrefest. Entre I think uh, it's Entrefest. Yeah. That would make sense. Entrefest, not Entree. <laughs> Entrefest. Yeah. I just haven't had breakfast yet. So I'm thinking about Entree. <laughs> Um, what do you, like, how do you see OUX being really beneficial for entrepreneurs or really anybody that's trying to innovate? So the, the benefit I see here is in, um, ensuring that, especially if, if this is sort of, a people trying to take an idea to market or, or carve out a, a bold new space in a market that, um, you kind of get one shot. I think to do things well, like as a, as a startup, you're probably working in, um, you know, with limited resources, limited budget. And if you biff things on the first try, you often kind of, you're, you're in catch up mode. So the, a huge benefit I see for applying OUX principles to, um, startups, whether it's, um, for for websites or whether people are creating like SaaS applications or whatever, it's like doing this work is not only beneficial from just a um, you know that the, the problem space model. Make sure you're really understanding like what is it that we're what is it that we're doing? Who are we serving? What are the you know what are the things that they're concerned about? But that anything that you ultimately create digitally whether that's a website or an application or, or hell, if it's a board game instructions for a board game, it's like, 
there's there's like no downside to to taking an OUX approach, and I think the potential dividends are are huge. So, for an entrepreneurial or innovative space, I think um, one of the one of the huge benefits is just clarity and mm-hmm. and like being on point with that initial offering and getting as much traction as possible as quickly as possible because traction is huge. Yeah, uh, totally agree. I would also add that I think that when you're when you're really intentionally exploring relationships between objects, that's where I think a lot of cool innovation can happen where you say like, oh, these things, they haven't been well connected before. I mean, they're connected in the real world, but there's nothing like, um, there's nothing that's actually connecting them in the digital space where I can see the mm-hmm. relationship between these things. Um, I think that helps a lot. And then also just like modeling a domain can help you identify a problem actually. Yeah. Um, just by, you might not even know what the problem is yet, uh, much less the solution. So doing some very high level domain modeling, like I want to innovate in healthcare or I want to, you know, innovate in ed tech, but let me just model out this domain and see where the weak parts are actually layer on a competitive analysis on top of that domain model and see like, okay, what's being covered and what's not being covered. Um, could be really interesting. Um, So we're coming up on the hour here, but I have a few more questions for you. Do you have a, you sure. at a 10 o'clock? Are you, can I go? Um, I, I do, but my 10 o'clock is pretty understanding. So I think we could probably go over by a couple of minutes. I'm going to, I'm going to take like three more minutes. I'm gonna, okay. Okay. You can have three more minutes. All right. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so I think that, um, let me, let me see, which one do I want to ask? Um, okay. <laughs> I'm going to ask you just one more question and that sure. is, where do you see UX going in the next 10 years? Maybe even five years, but like, where do you see this profession that's kind of like, I, I would say a teenager now? Um, what do you see it growing or what would you like to see it growing up to be? Oh, gosh, that's like a really hard question. Um, so so uh, I saw I saw an interesting take on Twitter recently that kind of had some uh, had some resonance for me and it was kind of talking about the um the difference between UX design and product design and um and I I hadn't really I hadn't really you know heard about that juxtaposition or didn't really have a, an immediate take on on how those were different and I went and I looked up um some more information about product design and there's actually a lot there that resonated for me with regard to, um, you know, a a UX design role purely is like 100% focused on the user, the end user, optimizing that experience, which is super cool, right? And needed. Um, The product design, as I read more about that, it was kind of like, it's, it's it's the things that you bring to UX design plus a focus on the business. And I think there is some really valuable and awesome um, synergy between when you do good for the user, it helps the business. And when you do good for the business, it can help the user. And so that's a space that I'm personally kind of interested in exploring a little bit more because honestly, I, I, do, I have to do a lot of that stuff anyways. Like just the, the role I'm in, the, the size we are, the clients we're working with. I don't have the luxury of just 100% focusing on 
the end users. There's always there's always um, you know some service to the business in the mix, and so to kind of be more intentional and deliberate about that, and and kind of uncover, uh, okay, what does this process look like if we're sort of um, addressing both of these needs in in one you know fell swoop like um, I think there's some I think there's some really interesting stuff there and so I don't know if I, I don't necessarily know if that's where UX is heading but that was kind of the take on Twitter was that that you know maybe we're moving into the the time where it's not going to be so much UX design it's going to be more product design with um, some if not equal at least larger focus on uh, servicing the business as well as the end user. I've definitely seen that trend in the conversation. Um, my good friend and colleague, Jay Cornelius of Nine Labs here in Atlanta, he talks about how there's, the, of course, the question, the debate of do designers need to develop, do developers need to design, but he thinks the real conversation is that designers need to business. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, for sure that we just need to have it. We just need to be able to speak that language. And, yeah. um, a lot of, a lot of us are, are kind of hands off when it comes to that, when it get, gets into the spreadsheets or when it gets into business logic, we kind of want right. to take a step back when we should be, should be taking a step forward into that. And yeah, so I couldn't yeah. agree more. Yeah. I mean, op optimizing, optimizing business functions and, and making it easier for businesses to do the right thing more quickly. I don't see how that doesn't help end user customers. So, so yeah, I think, I think that's a, that's a really interesting, interesting potential trend that I'm um, personally all about kind of diving a little bit more and cool. seeing what's there. Yeah. Carolyn, thank you so much. This is an awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. And, um, just, I will link to all the things that you have going on. I'm so super excited for your 2020 and, um, yeah. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Sophia. And thank you for creating OUX. It's definitely become one of my, my favorite power tools. So appreciate you doing what you do too. Awesome. That's a great way to end it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for hanging out with the UX Hustle. For show notes and more episodes, go to uxhustle.org slash podcast. And remember, don't wait for inspiration to act. Act to get inspired.